Welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Vanita Jones, and I am honored to be a part of the teaching team um, and being here with all of you today. I'm both excited and I admit I'm a little bit sad to be wrapping up the study of Hebrews. I'm excited because it's chapter 13. This is where we're going to learn how we take everything we've learned over the last 10 weeks and apply it to our spiritual walks, to our daily lives. This is where the rubber meets the road and it all becomes Monday morning practical and you put it to work. But I'm also a little sad because I won't see you for a few months or a couple months and, and I can't wait to get back together in January. Now as I was preparing today, I started looking back over the entire book of Hebrews and it made me realize it was kind of like the cliff notes that I used to read in college in my English classes. You know the yellow ones you'd go to the bookstore and buy? It is. Hebrews is a cliff notes of the Bible. It has the Old Testament. It has the New Testament and how it all comes together. It has the greats, all of them listed. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. And then there's all these warnings and these encouragements and how to live that life. And here we are today. We get specific ways to live out our faith. It's the Bible, Hebrews. It's amazing to me. But you know, it also reminded me of something else. It reminded me of my very first experience on the zip line. <laughs> I don't know about you, and I'm sure there are a lot of you women out there. You look really brave. You probably zip line all the time. <laughs> I don't get on a foot-foot ladder in the safety of my own home to put a star on the Christmas tree. So it was not on my bucket list. Ever. Never were anywhere near my bucket lists. In fact, the only reason I ever agreed to do it the first time was because of something I warned my children of for the, over the last many years. Peer pressure. It was completely peer pressure. There's a picture of me and my husband. He's so sweet. He's encouraging me. He says, it's going to be okay. You can do this. I was nerve-wracked. I couldn't even think about it. Now, since that time, I've ziplined a lot. But that first one is burned into my brain, and I will never forget it. We were in Hawaii with friends. They decided it'd be really fun, the zip line. So they chose the zip line. And the one they chose was going to be one that was going to have us going over a gully that was really deep and really, really wide. And I couldn't imagine why we would do that. <laughs> but I've noticed since that first zip line... Every experience ziplining starts out the same way. They give you everything you need to do it, right? You get all the equipment. They tell you how to use the equipment. They tell you what to expect on your journey across that zipline. They tell you the do's and don'ts. They warning, they're warnings. Don't grab the zipline. Well, really? I mean, there are all these warnings. And then they give you this long safety speech. These are all the things we've put into place to make this safe. I'm sure it was all supposed to make me feel really secure. It did none of that. See, I'm married to an insurance man. <laughs> I can't even imagine why he took us out there, number one. But secondly, we in our house live by the motto, if it's going to happen, it will. I mean, if it can't, it will happen. Safety is no accident. That's what we say all the time. Plan well. And so everything's a potential hazard for us. So I listened to their little sweet safety speech, and I was still a nervous wreck. And if you remember, I don't know how many of you zip line, they always start you out with those little zips. You know, there's several. 
there'll be a little one that's just a few yards across, and it's no big deal. You're like, oh, this is pretty cool. I can do this. But they're getting you ready for that one that's the granddaddy of all, which, by the way, for me, was going to have me stepping off a platform, and they bragged about this. You're going to free fall for three seconds before the line, actually, your, your thing actually grabs hold of the line, and you're going to go across a four-football-wide four gully at 45 miles an hour. They were so excited to share that with me. <laughs> but here we are. We're going across this tower. I get across the first one, and I'm just shaking. And guess what they made me do? Okay, now we're going to walk across this, this rope bridge to the next tower. A rope bridge, too? Like, I've just jumped off a 100-foot tower, and now I've got to go across a rope bridge. So here we are, and, and I'm shaking, and it's terrible. And then they say, okay, this time we're going to sprint, and we're going to jump off with our eyes closed. <laughs> and the next time, you're going to go off backwards. And the next time, backwards with your eyes closed. And I was a mess, a mess by this point. So we get to the granddaddy of them all at the very end, and I've had all these opportunities to look back. And I was watching everybody else do it, how they did it, how it, this equipment is pretty secure. And here we go. We're on the last platform. Now, I'm not going to lie, I wasn't the first one to go off because that was terrifying. In fact, it wasn't until a woman, 30 years my age, stepped up and said, I'll do it. And I'm standing there, literally, this is me, I'm doing this. I'm like, what? And I'm thinking back that whole time, it's going through my head, I'm thinking, I'm thinking back to that safety speech. I'm thinking about that equipment they told me about. I'm thinking about everything that I had learned in every zip, what to do, what not to do. I watched everybody else do it. I knew they had struggled through it. I was ready to go. And then I had to step off that, that platform. But I had watched all of them do it, and they did it. They jumped off of that thing, and they sailed squealing with joy as they went across that goalie, and I was next up. You know, I'm thinking back over the first 10 chapters of Hebrews, it reminds me of that lengthy speech where they said, here's what you've got. You've got your equipment, it's safe, you can trust this, this is what you do, what you don't do. It's been tested, it works. Because chapters 10 through, one through 10, it gave us all these truths all these truths that we are going to need to be equipped with. They told us about the, how Jesus is greater than those Old Testament sacrifices, those covenants, those ceremonies, those priesthoods, everything. And knowing that Jesus is greater than anything or anyone gives us that firm foundation that we can build on so confidently as we take that leap of faith. You know, Paul refers to that foundation in his letter to the Corinthians. Look at Corinthians 1, 3 on your verse sheet. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each of us take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one that has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Chapters 1 through 10 taught us that Jesus is unchanging. He's wise. He's obedient. He's compassionate. He's sinless. He's perfect. He's powerful. And we could go on all day with this list. And it reminds us that he can be trusted. He's greater than anything or anyone else. He alone is our firm foundation. And chapter 11, it reminds me of looking back at those earlier zip lines where I was able to accomplish it without being upside down and, and slamming into a tree. 
It was all building my faith and my confidence. And I watched others do it. And I watched them do it successfully. And it built their, my faith watching them. That's what chapter 11 did. We had a whole list of the Bible greats. It's like he was saying, that's what you do. Do what they did. Imitate them. And he called them righteous because of their faith. These faithful servants listed in that chapter knew this one major truth. They knew that faith without works is dead. James 2.17 says it as well. So also faith by itself, if, not, if it does not have works, is dead. See, faith is only a noun. But when we act on our faith, it becomes a verb. When we act on our faith, it becomes alive. You know, if I had to put on all that equipment that day, and I'd listened to the whole safety speech, and I did all of it, and then I said, you know what, I'm going to sit here on this bench and watch you zip line. I would have missed out on so much. I had everything they had been given. I wanted to step out on faith too. And every time I zip lined since then, it's gotten easier and easier, and I've gained more confidence and more faith. This is me just a few years ago jumping off a tower. I'm an expert now. I could teach the safety class. I'm backwards. What you can't see, my eyes are closed. Yeah, I did the backwards without my eyes open. It's pretty amazing. That's because I trusted what I learned. I trusted that I learned and I was equipped for that, and I've had so many opportunities to grow my faith since that very first terrifying zip line I took in Hawaii years ago. You know, after establishing the truth that our faith is dead unless acted upon, in chapter 12, the author knows something. He knows it's not going to be easy. He goes one step further and he encourages us. He says, don't grow weary. Stay strong. He knows that a life of faith is going to take endurance, perseverance, patience, discipline. That's the easy stuff. It's hard. It can be hard at times. But he, he doesn't just give us this daunting tasks, all that we have to do. He gives us something else to cling to, a truth that Jesus is that perfect example. He did it. He lived a life that was a, lie, a faith that was active and alive, and we can watch him and his life and know how to do it. Now, we get to chapter 13, and this is where it's all tied up in a bow. Let's get started. We're going to look at chapter 13. I want you to open your Bibles, and we're going to start. I'm just going to read the first six verses to get us started. It says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your, li your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Now, First time we read those, or I read them, I just saw a random list of ways to live out a life of how we serve God and please God. But when you step back a little bit and you look at it from a distance, you begin to see this well-organized uh, list of ways that reveals a great deal to us about relationships. 
It's, it's how we live a life that's sacrificial, pleasing God. It's through our relationships. We have a God who's so relational. He wants a relationship with us. Relationships matter to God. And I think from that bird's eye view, chapter 13 does exactly that thing. We have relationships with believers and unbelievers. He addresses relationships with strangers, those imprisoned. He talks about relationships with past leaders and present spiritual leaders. It even deals with our own relationship with money and material things. And then it deals with the most important relationship of all, a relationship with Jesus. It's all relations, relationships. Chapter 13 starts off with the command to love one another. And I don't think that's an accident. I think that's going to be the basis for all these relationships. The author of Hebrews says that as brothers and sisters of Christ, we have to, we must love and, and show love and devotion towards each other. I think you can all agree that relationships can be hard. You may have some that are fabulous and they just feed your soul, but you always have relationships in your life that are, can be difficult. It can be within your own family. They can be difficult, messy, complicated. It's hard sometimes. So I think it's no accident that the author, author starts off this chapter with brotherly love. Because it's the basis for everything we're going to talk about, all fellowship. You know, the ancient Greek word, in the, in the ancient Greek language, there are several different words for the word love. And I'm sure many of you have heard those before. The one he's using here is called Philadelphia, which is not just the city on the East Coast. But it's, he's talking about a Greek word that's made up of two compound words. The first one is philo, which means um, kind of have a, a kind and devoted disposition, okay, towards others. The second word is Adelphus, which means brother. So these two words together suggest that the, it's the kind of love found in a close-knit family, a family that loves each other. But it's not actually that love because that word, the, the word for family love, is actually storg. And that means that's the kind of like the familial love, like you have between a parent and a child. So together, these two words... He's using it as the best way to kick off this series of, of, of different ways to live in a close, loving community with people who aren't your blood relatives. But you have this common bond. Your fellowship is based on some, a common unity, and that is Jesus Christ. That's the kind of love he's talking about here. It doesn't matter what kind of love, though, we're talking about. It has to start with loving God first. You've got to keep number one, number one all the time. We love others best when we love God the most. Jesus gives us that pattern. He, look at John 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you so you are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We're to be known as followers of Christ as those who show sacrificial self-giving, unconditional love for one another. And he gives top billing to this love. It's the first thing out of the gate. And he knows that if we're going to live together in, in peace and harmony as fellow Christians, we're going to have to love God first to show that brotherly love. Now, um, he also reminds us that... Unbelievers are watching. 
Sometimes unbelievers may see you reacting with other Christians. That may be, that reaction or interaction may be the only Bible they ever read. And if, if that is good, it's a great thing. If it's not, it's a bad thing. So it begs the question, it begs the question, what are they gleaning from how we're treating each other? I mean, are my words and actions with other fellow believers pointing them to Christ? Or are my words and actions turning them off to the things of Christ? It can have far-reaching consequences. And as you move on to verse 2, the author of Hebrews begins a list of ways to live out this command of love for one another. First up, we're to show hospitality to strangers. Now, remember the, the original audience for Hebrews were those early Jewish believers. So it's believed because of that the author is referring to hospitality that was shown to those early believers who were being persecuted, which was happening a lot. A lot of them couldn't make a living. Uh, they'd been tossed out of their homes. There was also talking about the hospitality of, of the preachers, the ministers that would go from town to town, so they would be cared for by fellow believers. But I believe it all applies to us as well today. We're commanded to show hospitality to others. And when we do that, we become the hands and feet of Christ. That's how we show Jesus to other people. It's when we extend hospitality to strangers, not only to bless them, guess what? We're often blessed, blessed as well. Verse 2 says that some have shown hospitality. They were unaware that they are entertaining angels. I don't know if you've ever entertained an angel or not. But I don't think you should focus on that. Because what you focus on, when you look back at Genesis, uh, Abraham in Genesis 18, he entertained angels. And he, he found out that day when he did it, that he and his wife Sarah, they were 100 years old and childless. They were going to have a son. They were blessed by that. Look at Lot in, Ge in Genesis 19. He entertained angels in his home inside Sodom. And because he did that, Lot and his entire family, well, aside from his wife, who was disobedient, were spared death when, when Sodom was destroyed. They were blessed because of their hospitality. So whether or not you ever entertain an angel, or whether or not you ever know if you entertained an angel, you can know that your act of hospitality can have a very far-reaching effect on other people. You never know how far-reaching it's going to actually be. And I can guarantee you this, that even if no one else sees it, Jesus sees it, and you can be assured that whatever or whoever is blessed by it, you can know for sure that he is blessed by it. He is blessed when we, when we care for others and show hospitality. Verse 3 says to remember the prisoners as if chained to them. That's a visual. That's up close and personal. And, it, and see, with a sympathetic heart, we're being called to love and serve those who have been imprisoned and or mistreated. Now, in the early text, they were most likely talking about those who had been actually persecuted and imprisoned for their faith. I don't know that we all have friends that are in prison because of their faith, but we all know people that are imprisoned physically. Maybe, um, maybe they're shut-ins or they're disabled or they're or they're, uh, because of their age, or maybe they have addictions, or they have sin that's imprisoned them that they can't seem to shake. So maybe it's us. Maybe it's you and me that we have something that we're imprisoned by. See, verses 2 and 3 call us to step out of our comfort zone 
and care for those who God brings across our path. And I can promise you three things when you do this. It's not going to be easy. It's rarely going to be comfortable. But guess what? It is always going to bless Jesus. It blesses Jesus when you obey and step out into that uncomfortable place and care for those people. Look at Matthew 25, 35 on your verse sheet. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brother, my brothers, you did to me. Allow the Holy Spirit to guide you so you recognize those opportunities where you're going to be able to take a leap of faith and care for someone around you that needs it. Step out there and do it and bless Jesus when you do it. Verse 4 moves into a completely different type of relationship. It addresses marriage. Now, at the time that this was written, there was this certain group of Jews who uh, considered marriage an unholy indulgence. That's what they called it. And they felt like celibacy was the best way to go. But it's safe to say, here we are in 2021, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, I think we can say that our culture has a very low view of biblical marriage. So this command to honor marriage applies to us as well. And I feel it's really important to note that the author of Hebrews says, let marriage be honored by all. See, to me that suggests that the bond of marriage is to be honored not only by those that are married, it's to be honored by those who aren't married. See, marriage, marriage can be dishonored by both married and unmarried people. Those are, are, are married, sometimes they dishonor their marriage when they commit adultery, of course. That's one. They can neglect to care for their mate or their spouse the way that they've been called to do or instructed by God's word. But both the unmarried and the married both can dishonor marriage when they encourage others to break their marriage vows. It's too hard. Go ahead and get out of that. When they, when they encourage or just accept living together outside of the bonds of marriage. Or when they redefine biblical marriage altogether and make it something that God never intended it to be. See, we're commanded, married and unmarried, to support each other in, the, in the others in their marriages. And, and we do that when we speak truth to each other regarding biblical marriages we encourage those to remain faithful in their marriages, and we pray for strong marriages. It's important in a church, in a, in a body of believers, to have strong marriages. You know, when I first read the next two verses, five and six, I felt like these two verses kind of stood apart from the first four. But the more I looked at it and the more I considered it, I realized they're right where they were supposed to be, and they were meant to go with those others. And that's because I think being content with what God provides helps us focus on loving and caring for others. Obsession with material things and insatiable need for more, it's, it, it indicates a lack of content with what God has provided you. At the heart of it, it's just a distrust of God to be your provider and that you need more. Not only does being content with what God provides us show that we trust his plan and his provision for our lives, but it also shifts our focus from here to there. 
When you're not as concerned about your needs and, 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 and having more, it frees you from that self-absorption that comes from being discontent and it allows us to focus on the needs of others. See, what these verses aren't saying, though, is that wealth is a bad thing. It's not saying that at all. It's addressing true commitment. And that has a lot more to do with who you are in here than what you have out here. And that's what your focus should be, filling up with, with the things of Christ and God. Paul had the right idea in his letter to Philippians. Look at Philippians on your verse sheet. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in every, whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul had it figured out. He knew what true commitment was. And he had had it all before. So he knew what plenty and he knew what nothing was. And he was still content. And you can do the same when you have an upward perspective. And then you're allowed to have an outward perspective. And it is a good perspective with the right motives. First, focus on loving God. And then you're going to love and care for others in a way that blesses them. And it brings God glory. That's the ultimate goal, bringing God glory. Let's continue. I'm going to pick up in verse 7 and uh, read the next few verses. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ <clears throat> is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which has not benefited those who devoted to them. Now, I want you to skip over to 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. Okay, the author switches to another type of relationship here, and that is the relationship with our spiritual leaders. He uses the word remember, which many suggest he's talking about those that have passed and they're no longer with them. They could have died of natural causes. We've had this happen. But a lot of them were martyred. A lot of their spiritual leaders were martyred in those days. But God wants us to look back at those past leaders whose lives pointed you to Jesus. And he says, imitate their faith. Do what they did. Now, what he doesn't want us to do is look back at our past spiritual leaders and leave them up on a pedestal and miss Jesus because we're worshiping those leaders. They're, in fact, those, those leaders are humans. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to fall. They're going to stumble. But he gives us the one that does it the perfect way. He says that Jesus is the same today or yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's the perfect one to follow. You, see, you know, I think, when I think about it, I think about the saying, um, imitation is the highest form of flattery. Can you imagine if those leaders that have passed and they had such a huge impact on your life and they've passed on, they're in glory now. Can you imagine what they would think if they knew that you were living out the faith that they had imitated to you? It would bring such a, a joy to their life, such a smile to their face. In fact, I think you should let your leaders today know that they've had an impact on your life. It's important. But we all know spiritual leaders come and go, and Jesus is the center of our faith, and he remains the same. He doesn't change. That is our ultimate spiritual leader. Now, for the early believers who didn't have scriptures to guide them like we do, 
It was important for them to have spiritual leaders that would teach them God's word. Because they didn't have their own scriptures. And they would teach them how to apply that to their lives, guide them through their spiritual walk. We have God's word today. But that doesn't give us license to not have spiritual leaders. We still need spiritual leaders. Those who will help us interpret hard scriptures and understand the scriptures. Help us to understand how to take those scriptures and apply them to our daily lives. We aren't meant to do this all alone. He gives us spiritual leaders to guide you. Verse 10 goes on and reminds us that every spiritual leader should be held accountable for how they handle God's word. See, any teaching that conflicts with the unchanging message of Jesus, it should be rejected. You should walk away from that. But how do you know that? It's by doing what you're doing today. You dive into God's word and you, you test everything you're taught and you up against the scriptures and what does it say and interpret. And then you won't be misled by false teachers. Jesus gives us this warning in Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And are grapes gathered from the thorn bushes or figs from the thistles? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Do their words line up with their actions? Allow the Holy Spirit to guide you as you search and study the scriptures and ask for discernment so that you can guard yourself against falling for false teachings. Now, verse 17 reminds us that our current spiritual leaders have a big job. I think we can all agree with that. They've been charged with overseeing a motley crew of believers with different personalities and different needs, and, and it can get messy and, and hard at times for them. We honor God when we humbly submit and obey spiritual leaders that are in his will. We honor God by doing that, and we make their job so much easier. Not only do we honor God, but we bless these leaderships because their life becomes so much less stressful. I'm sure at times they feel like they're herding cats. People going so many directions and doing so many different things, and I'm guessing they get discouraged. I can't imagine how they get discouraged. It's important to remember that they're humans just like us, but guess what? They were called to ministry, and they said yes. And they're trying to live that life the best way that they can honor God through it. And I'm equally as sure that they would be quick to agree that just because they're living that, that life-serving God... It doesn't mean that their life is stress-free, problem-free, and that they have nothing to worry about. It's so important to pray for them, encourage them as they faithfully shepherd us through the twists and turns of our own spiritual journeys while they're on their own spiritual journeys themselves. And, I'm, and as I mentioned before, our greatest desire should be to honor Jesus Honor him, our unchanging Savior. And when we do that, we do it by honoring the faith of those past leaders and humbly submitting and obeying the current spiritual leadership God has placed over you. Follow along. I'm going to pick up in verse 10, and I'm going to read to verse 16. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals where blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good, but share in, with what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Okay, to understand the meaning of verse 10, it's important to understand that the New Covenant Christians, those early believers, um, and it also applies to us as well, today we're not involved in those ceremonies that they were. We don't do sacrifices anymore. We don't do all of that, those ceremonies that they did. But we do have heavenly counterparts to those and those Old Testament things. And, and one of those things mentioned in verse 10 is he says, we have an altar. Okay, what he's not talking about is a physical altar like we see on our, at our churches in different places. He's not talking about the Old Testament tabernacle altars, like the brazen altar that he used, they used to offer the blood sacrifices. He's not even talking about the golden altar that was a place where they burned the incense in, inside the tabernacle. See, what he's talking about is Jesus. He's our altar. As a new covenant Christian, our altar is Jesus. Because it's through him we're going to offer our spiritual sacrifices to God. And then the same thing of comparing these Old Testament ceremonies with what we have here now with Jesus. The author emphasizes the separation from dead religion and, and hanging on to those old things and identifying with Jesus. Now, the image he uses here is in the Day of Atonement. And it's also known as Yom Kippur. It's one of the holiest days on the Jewish calendar. But on this day, the, the Jewish priest would make an atoning sacrifice for the sins of people. And then that act was of paying for their sins, paid the penalty for their sins. It was to reconcile the people with God. Uh, Leviticus 16 gives us a little bit more information about it. It says, And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make the atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung should be burned up with fire. So see, the sin offering was taken outside the camp, what was left of it, and burned up completely. Our sin offering has a name. It's Jesus. And he was taken outside the gates of Jerusalem, and that's where he endured death and his sacrifice his life for us to pay for our sins. We are called to identify with Jesus our perfect sin offering who suffered and died outside the gates of Jerusalem. So it's important to remember that these people that he's speaking to in the early text, the early believers, they were being persecuted. They were being badly mistreated because of their faith. Because they were following Jesus. So it was easy to understand when you know that, that they were trying to hang on to a few things and still identify with Jesus and try to find that safe spot where they felt secure somewhere in between. They kind of had one foot in Jerusalem and the other one outside the gates with Jesus. And the author says, no. Why are you still identifying with those Old Testament covenants? Why are you hanging on to the old covenants when it's been done away with through the redemptive work of Christ? But guess what? Again, there's really nothing new under the sun. Here we are today. We do the same things. We face challenges every day. Not exactly the same way those early Christians did. Hopefully you're not. But we... 
We have a hard time and a challenge identifying with Christ when we strive to live a life that honors God and pleases him and living in a fallen world. We still live in this world. You know, I've heard it said a million times, you can be in this world as a believer, but you can't be of this world. It's hard. And I think you can go one step further with that and say, you can't be in God's kingdom if you're not of his kingdom. I think, see, as followers of Christ, we have to live with this eternal perspective where we have both feet planted firmly outside the gates with Jesus. Not hanging on to anything in the, in the old stuff that we know. We have Jesus. That's where we plant. And that is how we successfully live in the world without becoming a part of the world. Verses 15 and 16 give us very specific ways to become sacrifices that are pleasing to God, just like the heading of chapter 13. The first marker of someone who's living a sacrificial life that pleases God is someone who is desiring to live an uncompromised life following Jesus. We know this because he says this, Through him let us continually raise or sacrifice of praise to God. See, it didn't say raise a sacrifice of praise when you're not too busy getting ready for Christmas or Thanksgiving. He didn't say, uh, raise your praises to God when everything is going great in your life. Or raise your praises to God when you're finished dipping your toe over there into the world and, it, and you're ready to come back. It says continually. That means without ceasing. That means that when things are great in your life, you're found praising him. And when things are difficult and scary, when you're suffering and you cannot see an end to that suffering, and all of it, the good and the bad, every single bit of it, you can be found praising God and giving him glory. Point others to his goodness when you're in those times. Another marker is someone who's living a sacrificial life is someone who's striving to glorify God with their words and their actions. Do their words line up with what they're doing? It's an easy way to know for us. Do my words line up with what I'm doing? It's a place to check ourselves every day. Are they praising God with their lips but not with their lives? Our words have to line up with our actions. The last marker of someone who's living a sacrificial life is found at the very end of 16. It's someone who's holding loosely to the things of this world and they're sharing generously with those around them. You can let go of it, whatever it is that has you bound up. It could be things. It could be material, wealth. It could be relationships. It could be whatever it is. When you hold lo loosely to those things, it frees you up to share your time, your resources, and whatever God calls you to do with others. In the last, the marker, the, there are markers that we found all through Hebrews, and they help us to evaluate um, our own lives. I think it's good to look at those and see, am I doing this? It's kind of a good checklist to evaluate every now and then. We find additional markers. We find them in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 5. So it says, put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, all slander. It says, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, and then by it you grow into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
Can you imagine if you'd have read that verse at the beginning and at first of September? You would have went, yeah, 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 one. Okay. I don't know what the priesthood is. I don't know what all the sacrifices are. I don't understand all that. You know now. That verse, I hope, because you dove into this entire chapter, the whole book of Hebrews, that has a great meaning to you now. It's not just another verse you're just running over quickly. See, we know that Jesus is greater than Old Testament sacrifices, priesthood, ceremonies. He's greater than anyone or anything, and we know that now for sure. And it's through Jesus, our perfect high priest, that we offer our lives up as a fragrant sacrifice, and it pleases our Heavenly Father. I'm going to finish up. I'm going to read uh, the last eight verses. I'm going to pick up in verse 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you with the most earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored with you sooner. Now may God, the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may, be, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I, prom- I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation that I have written to you briefly. I don't agree with that, but he did a lot of writing in depth. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. We're at the end of Hebrews. It's It's the cliff notes of the Bible. And what he's telling us here, he says, I don't know if you, like me, I got through those first few lists, and I'm thinking, I don't think I can do this. This is a daunting task of things to, to live a life sacrificial, sacrificial life pleasing God. I mean, those first five verses stepped all over my toes. But he gives us how we're going to do it. It's, it's a key to how we're going to live that life. We're going to pray for each other. That's how we do it. I think it's quite possible it's the only way we're going to be able to do it. Because I don't know about you, showing brotherly love to others, especially those who we live closely with, it can be a struggle. It can be difficult at times. And, and if you don't believe that, I, I just challenge you to go through the next couple of months and we'll talk at the end of December. <laughs> we'll all have some stories to tell, won't we? See, without prayer, it's impossible to love one another the way that God intends us to love, a, to love them. The author of Hebrews knew this truth, and he asked those readers of Hebrews to pray for him. He has two very specific prayer requests in those very first verses. And, he's, and it's, he knows it's the only way he's going to be able to do it. The first one we saw is that he prays for a clear conscience and a desire to honor God. I mean, we, he could have stopped right there. It covers all the bases. Those are two wonderful things to pray for each other and for ourselves. Now, the last two things I saw are not actually found in those specific prayer requests he gave them. But it was in the next two verses. When I read 18 and 19, I could almost hear Doug Cecil doing his benediction. Oh, he just, I just love that. And I, I almost wanted to get a video of him just so I could have it today. But this is what I think I see here, is that first, we should imitate Jesus, our perfect example. We were given the perfect example. 
That's who we're supposed to imitate. I mean, seriously, if I purposely imitated Jesus over the next couple of months, there are going to be a lot less problems in my life. And lastly, pray that they will rely on Jesus' power as they love and serve others. We need Jesus' power to do it. You know, I challenge you all to commit to praying for, for these things for others. Think of just a few people in your life that you're going to do this for. It's going to please God. It's going to encourage them. But, you know, I also encourage you and challenge you to praise these things for yourself as well. Then I want you to do this. I want you to watch with great expectation. Because he is going to bless you. And he's doing a, going to do a great work in you. Because he's going to give you opportunities to love others the way he intended them to be loved. Please pray with me. Father, we love your word. We, um, we know that brotherly love is not the easiest thing for us. But, Lord, you gave us the exact perfect example of what we should follow, who to imitate, and that's your beloved son, Jesus. Father, I pray that as we go into these next couple of months that he is forefront in our mind and that all of our reactions, all of our words, and everything we do honors you and that we bring you great glory as we celebrate with family and friends. Father, we love you and we love your word, and it's in your wonderful son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.